day. We'll be there in a few moments. First, I feel bad for Neil. He clearly drew the short straw on all the guys that do the stewardship challenges because he picked the month that I'm actually going to preach every Sunday morning on stewardship, and so uh, he did a great job. I don't feel sorry for him in that sense, but uh, his challenge was excellent. I enjoyed it immensely. I've enjoyed him teaching in classes or in the church service or in the devotion time or times of challenge like that for now these 15 years. And Miss Cookie, in the first hour, he had a lot more to say about Eve. It must be you being here in the second hour that caused him to not say as much about Eve and all of that stewardship. But uh, I'll let you ask him. How many years have you been married now? Sixty-two. I'll, I'll let you deal with that when you get home. You can ask him all about it. It wasn't recorded, so it'll just be on what he remembers. That's all I can say. <clears throat> We're going to... I started something I shouldn't have. We're going to stay on the message, though. We're going to look at stewardship principles this morning, the 12th, and then on the 19th, here in the month of November. I don't always do this as we drive towards our Stewardship Sunday and the church budget that is there, because we are a faithfully giving church. And so what I want to do this time is deal with four principles, three on Sunday morning and then one on the evening uh, that we look at our church budget. But here are the three or the th- four principles that I want to look at over the next three weeks, and that is this. The first area that we'll talk about today is the area of sweat. Now, how many have come to church and said the pastor's message was entitled, Sweat? You're welcome. Now, you have been to a church service where the pastor's message is entitled, Sweat. That's what we'll be dealing with today. It's the first principle of stewardship. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't... The Bible says, and so we live in a culture and we live in a country that didn't used to believe that, but now practices that. You know, we don't really have to work that hard. Friend, there's a lot of sweat. There's a lot of work that is required in this earth. The second topic that we'll be dealing with is save. Now, I'm not going to give you the best mutual fund that you can invest in. I'm a pastor, not your fiduciary. I am not going to give you any financial counsel or advice other than what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that we should save, not for the rainy day, but for every day. We should plan and we should put stuff in store. We live in a culture that knows nothing about savings. I have read that the actual, the real debt of the United States is not something like 39 or 40 trillion dollars that the real the actual debt meaning all debts included across the country both personal and public is somewhere near 200 t trillion dollars when you take all consumer debt all commercial debt and all public debts combined that is shameful don't worry, you got a week to get ready for that message. You're, you're good. Whew. Next week, there'll be a lot of people sick. The third is the area of spending. Now, most of us, when we think about stewardship, what do we immediately think of? Well, I just bought... Uh-oh. The problem is, in stewardship, these principles build upon each other. 
There is the idea of work or the sweat that we must put in in this life. There is the idea of saving or putting, laying in store. Then there is the idea of spending and doing so appropriately based upon the sweat that we've put in and the savings that we have. Some of you, when you hear that, think, spend? Man, that's got to come before save. I don't have any money to put it in savings. I run out of month every time. I, I run out of money, excuse me, every month. I don't have enough to get to the end. That's the truth for most people. There's more month than money <laughs> every single month. That's a problem. And the, fifth, or the fourth is that we share. And we'll talk about that on Sunday evening. You share with others, and you start by sharing with God. And it's a great and wonderful principle to follow. The Bible tells us a couple things here. If you'll look in Genesis 2... And in verse number 15, and then we'll turn over and look in Genesis chapter 3. And when we look in chapter 3, we'll look in verse number 17. We'll read these, we'll pray. And then I want to set the introduction of the whole series, and then I want to set a short introduction for today's on that of sweat. The Bible says in Genesis 2 and verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to do what? Read it with me. Dress it and to keep it. Turn over to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. The interluding period between this is that Adam and Eve chose to depart from God's order and God's command, as Brother Neil was talking about. They chose to take of the tree and, more importantly, sin against God by eating of that tree. And in eating of that tree at the beginning of chapter 3, they begin to blame each other. I, I, I love the reading of it because there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, Adam blames Eve and Eve blames Satan and Satan's just in the back corner smiling. And we come now to the curses. And in the cursing in chapter 17, we find that this work that was perfect, divine, and designed in the garden that we all should be engaged in now has sweat added to it. The Bible says in verse 17 unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake in sorrow. Shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art. And unto dust shalt thou return. Father help us I pray this morning as we now come to these principles of stewardship. As we look at them in our very lives. God, the first and most important thing that we must steward is the reality of your gift of salvation. Father, if there is one here this morning that does not know Christ as their Savior, and I am well aware that on a Sunday morning that is likely true, then anything that we say from this point, from a biblical basis, may not make sense to them. These are spiritually discerned truths. And only those who have received Christ as their Savior, repented of their sins and turned by faith to Jesus Christ, can truly understand the Word of God. Otherwise, it's just a history book. But God, as we come to these practical truths this morning, I pray that you will help us, especially we who are believers in Jesus Christ, that we may live according to them, because far too often Christians live just like the world. 
we must be different. You've called us to be different. Help us to understand, first, stewardship, but specifically, the work, the required sweat that we must put in when all of that thinking, hard work and honest work, goes against the common man's thoughts. Bless us, I pray in this hour in Jesus' name. Amen. Stewardship is defined as managing all that God has entrusted to us. In fact, stewardship itself defines our relationship to God. It is stewardship that gives structure to whether we truly love God or instead that we love ourselves, we love the world, or the material things, Jesus calls it mammon, the material things of this world. God is the owner, as we know, for the Bible teaches us He is the creator. If He is the creator of all things, then He is by default the owner of all things. To help understand this in a more clear sense, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 and into chapter 4 talks a lot about what believers, and particularly the church at Corinth, was to do within the realm of stewardship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, And in verse 9, Paul makes this application. He says, For we, that is the church at Corinth, and us this morning as believers in Christ, we are laborers together, how? With God. Good. Some of you watched Charlie Brown this last week, right? There'll be Charlie Brown Christmas. You sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. There's going to be a lot of that this morning where I'm going to ask you to answer. And if it's on the board, then read it. And that sounds rough, and I don't mean to be rough, but I'm just saying it sounded like this. Wah, 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 wah. Okay, we're laborers together with who? God. Well, what does that tell you this morning? That tells you in the work of your life, whatever your work in life is, whatever it is that God has called you to, whatever he has equipped you for, that work is a labor with God. You say, well, he's only talking to the pastor. Friends, Corinth was not a letter, or the Corinthians, was not a letter written to the pastors. If you really want to get technical, that would have been 1st and 2nd Timothy and the book of Titus. Those three are pastoral in nature. This is written to every believer. You are laborers together with God. Why? Because you are God's husbandry. What does that mean? That means you are literally the field in which God cultivates His activity in this world. Your life, your labor, your work is how God manifests himself in this world. Work takes on a much different dynamic then when we look at work in that way. He finishes by saying you are his building. That means he works through us. We are the performing of his functions in this world. If you were to go down in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians and look in verse 21, Paul picks up there and says this, Therefore, and what has he said in between this and that? He said things like this, that ye are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. That it doesn't matter who the planting pastor of that church in Corinth was, it is the fact of God being at work. And you, the people of God, you, those who are servants of God, you have a responsibility to God. And so he says this in verse 21, Therefore, let no man glory in who? How many in here would say, and please do not raise your hand, how many of you in here would say, you know, I really am proud of everything I've accomplished? Now, you say, well, pastor, I should be glad for what I've You should be glad. Pride is a sin. But what he's talking about here in verse 21 is that we glory. They were glorying in who their 
favorite pastor was, who they were a product of. And so the very next verse, Paul goes on and says, for all things are yours. Oh my goodness. Talk about a stewardship principle. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that is the Greek name for Peter, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all of them are yours. You can be a steward of all of those things. All of them are yours. And ye are what? Christ's. And Christ, or those who are in Christ, those who are followers of Christ, Christ himself is God. Notice what he begins in the very next chapter. Sometimes we look at chapters and verses and say, well, new chapter must be a new thought. It's a continuing thought. Paul then goes on and gives a personal testimony. He says, let a man so account of us, that is he and his traveling party, the missionary group, as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, what Paul did, his work was important to him. Do you consider the job that God has given to you important? Every single person in here that holds down work or that is working. Now, in the early hour, someone came after church and said, man, there's a lot of retired people in this service. All the work that you did do (laughs) leading up to that retirement time. All of the efforts in your life. Teach us that work is both designed by God and it's a delight to those who engage in it. Now you say, wait, that's not always true. We're going to talk about this this morning. Simply to say, Paul finishes with a verse that we all know about stewardship in verse number 2 of 1 Corinthians 4. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found what? Faithful. Faithful. The Christian, above all else, should be in total control of their earthly possessions and profession and not the other way around. We live in a culture, we live in a country that seemingly is designed to make us consumer-driven human beings. Stewardship involves, as one preacher called it, your work, your wallet, and your will. Now, I'm not going to talk about your money This week, because I don't want you mad at me until next week. But I will remind you that Jesus, in 11 out of the 39 parables that he gave while he was on this earth, that's 15% of his discussions in story form, referenced money and possessions. 2,300 verses in the Bible deal with money, wealth, and possessions. It seems like in 66 books, those 2,300 verses tell you that God cares about you managing your material wealth, your material possessions for His glory. One of the simplest and I would say one of the saddest passages is found in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. The Bible there says, For the love of money is the what? Oof the root of all evil. Is money evil? No. It is the love, the passion for it, the drive only for it, making it your God. He goes on to say, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Understand that Paul in that passage is talking to Timothy, a pastor. How many preachers do you know that are only motivated by the money? Money will corrupt just like power, it will corrupt us absolutely. But it's also true for the parishioner and the people of God, whomever we might be. 
Paul is writing to a young pastor warning him that making money your God will pierce your soul through with sorrow and fear. Money is not the issue here. It is your earning and the using of the resources that God has given to you that we'll be dealing with over the next three weeks. The first stewardship message then is about principle number one, and that is sweat. Some of you are thinking, yeah, you're making me sweat right now. Well, my job is to teach the truth. And sometimes that's in principle form like we've been doing. Sometimes that is about philosophical ideas or ways that we see, paradigms that we see the world through. But sometimes like today and next Sunday and the following, it's about practical stuff. Christianity is about the deep waters of faith, but it's also about the shallow waters of the kiddie pool where most of us get tripped up in life. And so God cares about our work. God created man to work. The curse made work difficult. We could say this then this morning. Sweat is the result of a man doing his God-designed function, but doing it in a fallen world. Work then is the first principle of stewardship. Adam was to dress and to keep the garden, two works that he was required to engage in. Had we continued reading in chapter 2, we would find that the purpose in God creating Eve was that Eve might help meet help meet the needs that Adam would have. There would be things that Adam would face in this life that he himself was not going to be able to deal with, but having a help meet, they could deal with those things together. Eve had her own work to engage in. God has work for everyone. Take your, uh, hold your finger here, take your Bible and turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's towards the back of the Bible, in the epistles. Pastoral secret on a Sunday like this, when you get to the T's, they all go alphabetical order. So if you find one in the New Testament that starts with a T, just go alphabetically. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it's three chapters the three chapters of 2 Thessalonians predominantly deal with the Thessalonican Christians wanting Jesus Christ to return. Does that sound like us today? Oh, this is a wicked world. Oh, there's problems everywhere. Oh, nothing's getting any better. Oh, man, I just wish Jesus would come back. And in the context of that mindset, that thinking... The Apostle Paul writes these words in 2 Thessalonians 3. It is the last place that you expect a lesson on work. But yet here it is. Because sometimes even we Christians, we get a little heady and high-minded and think, well, I would go do that, but I know Jesus is coming back, so what's the point? Paul says that's disorderly. Pick up the the reading in verse number 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. Now, pause. We sometimes read that and think, well, that that guy has his doctrine wrong. No, Paul's addressing somebody that has his practice wrong. It doesn't mean his doctrine wasn't wrong. The disorderliness, as we're going to come to find out in the reading, has to do with the fact of the practical application of Christian truth. And not after the tradition which ye have received of us, or after the teaching that we gave to you. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. There's a second use of that word. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, or for nothing. In other words, we didn't just take it as a handout, or a freebie. But wrought, Paul says... With labor and travail. Uh, Today, we might call that labor and delivery. (laughs) 
Ladies, you know what that's like if you've had children. Night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Paul said, I didn't come in there looking for a handout. I came in there to give God's help to you as a pastor. Not because we have not power. In other words, it, it, wasn't within our, it was within our right. We were allowed to take an offering from you for our, our, our ministry to you. He said, but we didn't come in doing that. But he said, we came in to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. In other words, we were trying to teach you people, get to work. Do work. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, this we commanded you that if any would, would, would not work, neither should he what? Well, we've heard that said before. How many times when you see some politician's ad running on the television and you hear about all of the free things that they're going to give away, it's like Halloween constantly for a politician. I'll give you this and I'll give you this and I'll give you this and I'll give you this. Have you said in your own mind, well, we got to work. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. This is where it's found. We go on. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. There's the third time he's used it. And the reference is there is some among you who are saying, hey, man, we don't have to work. We don't have to do anything. We, We can just sit around and keep taking from people. Working not at all. But our busybodies, by the way, when you don't work, guess what you do? You cause trouble for other people. Verse 12, now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness, in other words, shut your mouth, put, close your mouth and open your hands. With quietness, they work and eat what? Man. You have a socialist friend, just bring him to this passage. Socialism never works in the Bible. Everyone eats of their own hand, the Bible says. This little letter is about the second coming of Christ, and some seemed to be thinking here, well, let's just pack it up and not worry about doing any physical or even spiritual work. And Paul says, that's not how God designed you. That is disorderly. These people, it appears, were living off of handouts. They would have loved modern America. I'm not suggesting there aren't people that do need our help. I'm simply saying we have become complacent in our thinking and corrupt even in our thinking that we don't have to work hard. This nation, any nation, is built upon people that are willing to work. And we are increasingly finding that Christians don't want to put in a solid day's work. How damning that is about our faith and our testimony. So there's three simple truths about work that we can derive from our text in Genesis 2 and 3 that will make you one of the best workers at whatever profession that God has given to you. It begins, number one, with honest work. Honest work. In Genesis 2 and verse 15, we remind you that the Bible says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it, and to keep it. In other words, this is just an honest day's work. How many have ever heard that phrase used? Man, I, I, just, I just want to go do an honest day's work. Okay, well, this is what an honest day's work means. We live in a world where everyone wants to get rich quick. We have people that want to have maximum wages for minimal work. That's not God's design. There's a progression up through what we might call the food chain. The Christian, living by biblical principles, while able to work, should work. 
The human body, in fact, is designed to be engaged in work. When it's not, it actually begins to develop, develop problems that a working body doesn't. Now, I grant you, many of you folks that work out at Toyota, you have the biomechanical people that tell you what to do. And some work in a rep- repetitive way can break the body down. But I'll tell you this, sitting on your couch eating Cheetos will really break the body down. Oh, those Cheetos, they're good. I had some yesterday. It may be that you are retired here this morning. There is still work that you can accomplish. Menial and trivial tasks to others that engage your mind are useful and productive. There are still things that even in your retired years you can do. Honest work begins then with, letter A, following instructions. God's given directions for Adam were to dress and keep the garden and for Eve was to be a helpmeet. We struggle in the modern world with the simple instructions for a home to practice financial discipline so that they may live on one income. I never in my life thought I would agree with the one billionth Cherokee Indian Elizabeth Warren. Some of you are trying to figure that out. She was a Native American, but when they did the DNN test on poor Miss Warren... They found out that she was like .00000058 Native American. And the point is, is I never thought I would agree with her in politics or anything in life. But I actually do. Do you know what I found out? She and her daughter in the late 1980s wrote a paper for Harvard that said the happiest and healthiest American home lives on one income. Now, they didn't say if it was the man or woman. They missed that part of the Bible. But she did write that paper. Now, I do wonder if I came to her office in the Senate office building and dropped that on her desk. In fact, the Graham girls, Ethan's sisters, one of them works on Capitol Hill. I've thought about sending a letter to Ms. Warren and say, I used you in a sermon. Do you still think that way? She probably doesn't. But that was the paper they published. It's on record. So if a liberal Washington politician, right, that's what all the ads say now, can believe that, why as Christians can we not believe that? They didn't leave for Neil, but they left when Kyle started. I'll tell you why. The rat race of consumerism has created an America where both husband and wife are required to work. And that's not biblically right. There's nothing wrong, obviously, with a woman working. Except, I would say, according to the Bible, when children of primary age are still at home. When I was a kid growing up in Frankfurt and then my mom and dad moved to Fairfax, Virginia, my mother worked where my sister and I were. She drove a school bus. She was, when we got to Virginia, only working from nine to one. And when I got to where my sister could drive and we could go to school, man, she went to work full time and she was one of the best the CIA had ever seen. But she understood there was a point and a process to what the Bible actually says. And that is, when the children are present at the home, it is healthiest and best for the mother to be present in the home with them. I understand that I'm out of touch. I realize that I will get canceled. And probably our algorithms on YouTube right now are going down by the nanosecond. But the point is, this is what the Bible teaches. And I'm not going to apologize to you for what the Bible says. Well, Pastor, we have a a really great public education system that takes care of my kids for me. Christian homes, how is that working out for us? 
Why is it, Pastor, that so many kids are leaving the faith? It's because they've been indoctrinated day after day. Not by bad people. There are great people that work in our school system. But it's the product of what they have to teach. It's the environment in which they find themselves. And when a mom says, whoop, not my problem. I'd rather work. We're putting the priority in the wrong place. Some might say, well, I pay for a private school and the tuition forces my wife to work. Again, not ideal. Here's the one that I always agree with and I pray for. I'm a single mom and I have to work. My kids have to go to school somewhere. I understand that one. I get it. My point is, because we must have the bigger house, the nicest car, the fanciest clothes, the premier arts and athletics and entertainment, we simply abandon the Bible principle of whose responsibility, whose primary responsibility work is. We can't even follow the basic instructions. So how can we engage in honest work if we can't follow the basic instruction? The second thing that I put in your notes there, if you're still with me, is forging our identity. Now, I am not suggesting that you are identified by your work. But within the work that you do, you forge an identity of what your character is, of who you are, what your makeup is. Work does not identify us, but rather we establish our identity in the work that we do. I have worked in my life as a grass mower, a golf course well, I was a, worked in the bag room at a golf course in northern Virginia. I've worked directly for the federal government. I worked as a contractor for the federal government. I was a high school basketball and soccer coach. I was a middle school math and history and Bible teacher. I've been an administrator of a church staff. And now for the last 15 years, I've been a pastor. Can I tell you something? None of those jobs, careers, or professions have ever identified who I am. But I, in each of those, have tried to identify as the hardest working Christian I could be. In other words, I've tried to apply who I actually am to what I'm actually doing. I forged my identity into each of those jobs by being the best worker, by being honest with my time, by being on time, by being truthful in my knowledge, or lack thereof. You know, one of the funniest stories in my whole life is between the time I worked for the CIA and went to work for the Pentagon, I actually was offered a job in Tampa, Florida. I flew down to Clearwater, got off the plane, drove across the crawlsway by, before the teenagers would think it's Uber, it was a taxi. A taxi cab drove me across the causeway over to Clearwater, Florida. I went into the place and a headhunter had found this job for me. It's going to be perfect for you. And I went into the interview and the person in the very first sentence said, do you know no XYZ database management system. No. Oh. Well, do you know it a little bit? No. Well, so-and-so on the phone said that you knew it very well and I, you would be a great hire and I should hire you. I said, I'm sorry you've spent nearly $1,000 bringing me down here for this, but I don't know any of that. I was 24, 25 years old. I mean, I could have written my own paycheck. By the way, that company became known as WebMD. <laughs> I could have lied to them and probably made out pretty fat with a big paycheck. Now, I would have never met Jessica. I would never have been in the ministry. I never would have served the Lord. And so God always knows what he's doing. But the point is, I could have gone down there and immediately lied to the people. But I said, it's not who I am. I'm a Christian. I can't go and tell a lie. 
And yet, day after day, people go in and say, you know what? (laughs) OJT, man, on-the-job training. Just tell them you don't know it, but tell them you're willing to learn it. That's what I did. And the gentleman that was interviewing me said, well, that's wonderful. That's very kind of you, but that's not what we need. We need an expert. That's not me. (laughs) Put me back on a plane, Southwest Airlines, back to Dulles Airport, and I was done. Here's what Ecclesiastes says about forging your identity in the work that you do. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 7, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity. When he says of thy vanity, he's saying of the earth that you, the life you live here on earth, the temporal realm, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. The old Testament saint looked at the grave as the stopping point, the end point. He says, you got to work while it's day. Jesus would say that of the spiritual work, work while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. You must forge your identity. You must begin to look at, not just believe in your mind, but look at earnestly with every action and act that the work you have is God-given and God-designed. Oh, you'll be a different worker. There's not enough pulpits that will tell you that today. They would say something like this in the modern church. You know what? You deserve some self-actualization. And you deserve some self-appreciation. You deserve some self-love. What you need is some self-discipline. If I haven't lost the rest of you, now we're getting to hard work, number two in our outlines. Honest work is where the sweat begins. But it's in the hard work that the sweat flows. (laughs) In chapter 2, in in verse 15, Adam had been given clear instructions, and in obeying, he was going to forge his identity that he had faith in God. And he failed. He didn't. And so it led to hard work. In chapter 3 and verse 17, the Bible again there says unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I have commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Work just got hard. In sorrow, maybe that should be underlined in your Bible. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground. Letter A, after Adam sinned, work became hard, and work now required discipline. It requires discipline. Work was now in sorrow. Can I let you in on a secret this morning? At some point... In this life, everyone hates their job. (gasps) I don't. I work for myself. Listen, when you look at your inventory list and you realize you're out and you got to go make more, even if you work for yourself, you start going, man, I don't know if I like this job. You know what makes vacation so sweet? It ain't work. I I tell my wife all the time, I will go anywhere with you and the boys on vacation because you're my wife and they're my boys. But I will go anywhere with you that I don't have to work. You say, man, you're a pastor. You should just uh, enjoy the fact that you're a pastor. I mean, what do you do? You just sit around with your feet up on the desk and read your Bible all day. 
If you know me, you know that's not true. That's only half of the day around here. I have to put a little humor in so you don't go home completely mad at me. Friends, it takes discipline to truly overcome the hardships that are at your job. The difficulties of your task and then engage in the effort that is necessary to produce for those who have employed you. Whether it's you being self-employed, your company, a multinational megacorporation, the government, or even if it's God who is your direct employer for those who have Christian work. You must discipline yourself. It's through worrisome toil and pain that we come to the end of a day. Yes, to the teenagers and the 20-year-olds in here, you must put down the phone, put down the game controller, to the older generation of men and women, put down the TV remote, and go do work. Our nation no longer knows how to do hard work. One of the greatest speeches ever given was given by President Kennedy about going to the moon. We don't choose to do the easy things. I can't really do Kennedy's voice as well. I'm not from Massachusetts. We choose to do the hard things, he said. Why do we go to the moon? Kennedy said we choose to go because it's hard. Could you imagine a president standing up today and say, hey, we're going to choose to do some of the hard things? Man, he would be polling it at like half a percent, like most of the Republicans and none of the Democrats. My point is is that solutions don't come even through politicians anymore. It's going to have to start in the household of faith. It's going to take Christians saying, we understand there's discipline that's required for me to do hard work. I was reading an article even this morning of people who are clamoring for a four-day work week. They have said, many of you... <clears throat> who were born in the 90s and 2000s, have answered a survey from Bankrate that said, if you will give me a four-day work week, I will give up. And some of the things they listed are like health benefits. It's because they don't understand what health benefits cost, because until they're 26, they can stay on mom and dad. The point being, they'll give up a whole lot of things if they can work less. My goodness. And this is not me saying there's not employers or workplaces that are cruel taskmasters. There are. But hard work, a, diligent, a disciplines day work is what we need. Proverbs 6 and verse 6 through verse 10 is always a great one to go to. In case you ever worry that you are lazy, here's what you should go and study. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, you lazy person. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, in other words, there's no boss over, nobody said, go do this, go here, no overseer or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? How long are you going to be lazy in this area? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Here's the voice of the sluggard. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. Here's what the... Writer of uh, Proverbs, Solomon, King Solomon says, So shall thy poverty, poverty come as one that travaileth. He could literally have said as a woman that travaileth. The end of that verse, and thou, thy want as an armed man. The idea is that there is going to be a forcible problem for you if you aren't diligent, disciplined, I should say, in your work. The idea is that work is hard and we shouldn't complain about it being hard. We should embrace 
the ardor of the task that we are given. We've become a nation of whiners and complainers when we need to be a nation of doers of difficult things. I came across this week the statistics that of the unemployed and not in the labor force. Did you even know that? When they give you the unemployment numbers, there is actually another number that's called not in the labor force. The not in the labor force number of the 16 to 64-year-olds is about 29 million people. So in other words, the unemployment numbers, which are 14 million, added to 29 million, it comes up to something like 9 to 12 percent of 16 to 64-year-olds who could and should be working are just not working. What are they doing? Better yet, how are they paying for life? Maybe even deeper, what is the problem? Is it a personal problem or is it a public problem? And the answer is probably on both fronts. The ground, the place of work, no longer brings forth only fruitful trees and vines to Adam in Genesis 3 and verse 17. It brings forth thorns and thistles, reasons you might say to avoid work. Nobody gets, likes getting stuck. Excuses that we so often, oh, I don't want to do that job. I met a guy, and I just gave a list of many jobs I've had. I've had those jobs beginning at age 13. I started mowing grass when I was 13. I made a moped with caster wheels behind it that pulled a trailer and pulled my mower around at 13 so I could go and mow people's grass because I wanted money. That's all I told my dad. I want money. I used to chase it. Thankfully, I became a pastor, and I don't care anymore. I've known work, but it's been over, you know, 34 years of my life that I've done that kind of work. But I've known people, like, in a year or two, I've had nine jobs, Pastor. Well, pick one. (laughs) I don't mind if you're looking for the right one, especially teenagers, right? It's hard to figure out what you're going to do and what you're going to be. But once you've found one that not only pays the bills but gives you some sense of satisfaction, do it! Be disciplined in it. The discipline comes letter B. After it comes diligence. The Bible tells us that work was now in the sweat of Adam's face. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Paul, writing to the Colossians, said this in Colossians 3 and verse 17, Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Verse 23, we pick up our reading again there, and it says, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, or what is owed to you. For ye serve. Why are you working at all? You serve the Lord Christ. Hard work requires diligence. So there are likely evenings, men, when you come home, plop down at the dinner table or in your easy chair, spent from thinking all day or exhausted from standing and straining all day in the given task that you have. That is good. It's good to be so exhausted from work that you're reminded, I did work today. You should remind yourself that this is now the reality of our race because of Adam's sin, but it's also the way in which you are blessed by God. So many people are not willing to discipline themselves with a diligent routine that is required to become good and effective workers. Diligence, by the way, is simply careful and persistent effort at something. I was a terrible bag boy at Springfield Country Club where I grew, outside of the, the little town that I grew up in, in in Northern Virginia. 
But there was a big sign over the door. It was one word. And Jay, who ran the, the, the pro shop and was the club pro at that golf course, he, would, he came down every time it would come loose or somebody would knock it loose or somebody would take it down, he'd nail it back up. Do you know what he would say to us in the bag room or all the guys that worked there on those really hot July days? It was one word, quit your belly aching. Didn't have any spaces or any breaks. It just said, quit your belly aching. And any time somebody in the bag room got a little off kilter, Jay would come down from the pro shop and he would look at the sign and say, quit your belly aching. That's the truth. It's just diligence. Complaint is not going to change it. Listen, when I became a pastor, there was no boss over me, right? I mean, when we planted the church, there was two. Jessica was not going to be my boss. She didn't want that title. She has it if she wants it, but she didn't ask for it. So she's like, nah, I'm not going to be your boss. You're good. One of the biggest fears I had was, if nobody's my boss, how am, I going to, how am I going to make sure I get everything done? And the answer came very quickly, be diligent. Sit down, make a plan, make a schedule, know what you're supposed to do, and make sure that you always keep the main focus of pastoring that, and that is people. Can I tell you a secret? Pastoring is not about programs. It's not about properties or buildings. Pastoring is about one thing and one thing only, people. So I became diligent in the way people think. Well, here's the takeaway from that. Proverbs 12 and verse 24, that's your heart, that's your answer. The hand of the diligent shall what? Bear rule. But the slothful, that lazy kid, shall be under tribute. we got a lot. In fact, our nation has become so lazy, it seems we are in deep tribute right now. The one truth we know from the passage on the curse is that Adam would eat of the work that he did. This teaches us that Adam's honest and hard work would make, number three, work honorable. We often do not look at our jobs as an honorable thing, but I can tell you it is. To work, we could say, is divine. We find two honors throughout the pages of Scripture given to those who will be diligent, disciplined workers, both hard workers and honest workers, those who follow the instructions and forge their identity, both in diligence and discipline. We find the first benefit to them is a fair compensation. You say, really? The Bible talks about that? Listen, if you don't know that that's in the Bible, what are you negotiating with? You don't need a rep or a union. You just need to know the Bible. Listen to these Bible verses. Leviticus 19 and verse 13. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. In other words, if you've done work, you should be paid. James 5 and verse 4. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, James says. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. God hears your dishonesty. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 18. For the scripture saith... Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Jeremiah 22 and verse 13, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's service without wages and giveth him not for his work. There have been people through the years of bluegrass who have done work for us on a contract basis, outsiders, and they may have done great work or they may have done terrible work, but whatever we agreed, we paid. Why? Because a labor is worthy of his reward. 
The service was worthy of the wage, the Bible says. Colossians 4 and verse 1, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. John the Baptist answers a couple Roman guards or Roman soldiers coming and asking him a question of what they should do. And here's what John the Baptist says in Luke 3 and verse 14. The soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, do violence to no man. In other words, don't act in violence without the emperor's cause. In other words, don't go around just being a ruffian. Neither accuse any falsely. That was important for the soldier. But notice the third thing that John the Baptist tells these soldiers, these hired hands of the emperor. He says, and be content with your wages. Do you know what a Roman soldier's wage was? Salt. Do you know where we get the phrase today, that guy's not worth his salt? It's from the Roman days when a soldier was a terrible soldier. He wasn't worth his salt. He wasn't worth his salary. God's word is clear about employers paying salaries equitably and on time to those who work for them. And it is equally clear that the workers should be satisfied with the wage that they agreed to do the work for. We live in an age today of strikes and walkouts and sit-ins and no-shows. Yes, capitalism can be abusive, and often in our modern America, it is by those who control wealth. But equally as damaging are lazy workers who demand more while they do less. We'll not look at it today, but in Ephesians 6, there's a wonderful passage that speaks about this, about servants being obedient. I remember when I was younger... My dad used to say to me as a kid growing up, whether it was sports or whether it was work or whether it was in school, he said, Kyle, don't ever let someone else outwork you. That's been a motto of mine my whole life. And sometimes, by the way, even when the pastor's preaching, he's preaching it for you. But I recognize I've got six ears that belong to me who have the last name Fannin, who are growing up in my house. And sometimes it's easy to go, well, he's a pastor. He doesn't do anything. I hope you all know that as a pastor, I work hard on your behalf because I want to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But I also hope that as a father, I teach my kids to grow up and not be deadbeats. I hope you parents are doing the same with your children. It leads us finally to our Father's commendation. A fair compensation in this world, but if our Father in heaven will commend us, certainly in our spiritual work, what is it that we all strive to hear? Well done. Good and faithful servant, enter ye into the joy of the Lord. For physical work, there is a receiving of the blessing of supply, abundance, or we might even say in the modern terms, enough. You say, is that really in the Bible? Proverbs 14 and verse 23. In all labor, there is what? All right. It's better when God says it than me making it up. Do you believe that? Well, I mean, the profit might be that I've learned what hard work looks like. Yeah, there's profit in that. But it also has the sense in the very original language of the Hebrew of actual financial profit. Why? Because the latter half of that particular proverb says, But the talk of the lips lendeth only to penury or living in deep poverty. Listen, I I can say a lot of times when people come to me and say, Pastor, I I just like to know what the will of God is. If they're not employed, I usually will say to them, if they're an adult male, get a job. Now, I will say it smiling and nicer than that, and I'll have some encouraging Bible verses because that's what a pastor's supposed to do. But at the end of it, at the heart of it, in the bottom of it all, get a job. You will feel more satisfied and accomplished in this life if you are doing anything 
I can't even think of what the most menial task today might be for a job, but whatever it is, go do it. Get a job. Work. We have lost that desire. And families don't teach it to their kids. They just give them allowance. Man, our kids, if they don't do their chores, guess what they don't get? Their allowance. They are not entitled to it. I was joking with Nate yesterday. Came home uh, after Gospel Blitz and he said, Hey, Dad, will you help me with my Saturday chores? Jessica took the other two boys to go see Aldi. (laughs) Aldi's open, y'all. Look out now. Dutch food. Anyway. So I went home with Nate, my middle. And he said to me, Dad, will you help me? I said, yeah, I'll help you with some of your chores since you asked. I said, that's not a problem. I've got some time free before the football game comes on. Let's do it. He goes, I'll pay you a buck. And I looked at him and he's smiling. I looked at him and I said, you're paying me a buck. I pay you the salary. I got hired back on my own job. And I thought, man, that guy is going to run the world. We we know our boys are very successful young men at their age, and we're happy for that. He just hired me. I I think I did a good enough job. I'm not even sure if I got fired. I still haven't got my dollar, and that's why I read some of those verses this morning. (laughs) Friends, it is through obediently working according to God's design that we accomplish His will. It is God's will that you work. If you're able-bodied. So often I'm asked, what does God want me to do in life? Well, first, if you're a man, work. If you're a mother, work within your home, according to Proverbs 31. If you are a woman with a husband and no children, then you two determine what you want to do or what you must do. And ladies, if you're not married, be Ruth. She went out into the field and provided for herself and her mother-in-law. And what you hear is not that pastors against a woman working. I'm saying if we are forfeiting the chief job of raising our children, we are sinning. But there's great success in following the Word of God. So whether it's spiritual work or physical labor, God blesses those who obey Him by engaging in work. What is the application of the take-home then today? Well, it would be great if every member of Bluegrass who has a job put some sweat into your work habits this week. What would your boss think if you showed up early and you stayed until the closing time? You didn't go, well, you know, I got to go drop the dog off, so I need to get out of here about five, ten minutes early. It's okay, right, Russ? All right, here we go. It is a joy to me. When I come into the office, I mean, I try to get in here most days between 7.45 and 8 o'clock. Usually I'm rolling in at some point in that time. On Mondays and Tuesdays when the whole staff is in, I'm the last car usually that gets here. These people love this place. They like working here. They like working for the Lord and serving you people. That's a wonderful blessing. I've never had to sit down in the staff meeting and say, Hey, y'all, you need to get into the office better. Do the work that God's given to you. I wonder what your job would be like if you actually went in and decided to do the hard things so that you can accomplish great things and be satisfied then with the effort for just the effort's sake. Well, what do I get out of it? You become more disciplined as you apply the diligence of your hand. We live in an age where everyone wants to work as little as possible, and that's not the Christian ethos. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12, and we're done. The Bible says, And that you study to be quiet. Same group, Thessalonica, first letter. Not the second one in chapter 3. This is the first letter. And to do your own business. And to work with your 
own hands as we, Paul says, commanded you, that ye may walk honestly or with integrity of character and conduct before the world toward them that are without. And notice the very last sentence or the last phrase. That ye may have lack of what? Can I tell you something? If you're living in poverty or in debt, there can be very real physical factors. But the most often truth is that we have not put our hand to the plow to work. Oh, it might be because we spend too much. We'll talk about that. It might be because we don't save enough, and we'll talk about that. But it very well may be that you just don't work enough. May God always make us faithful workers for His glory. Father, help us this morning as we pause for prayer.